0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Minns. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky.
1: G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. So much going on in the world at the moment. Uh, We're only early into 2023 and yet it feels like a packed year with so much happening almost on a daily basis. Uh, Who better to help me unpack all this than... A good friend of the show, Hagar Shamali, who joins me for a chinwag. We talk about a lot about Ukraine, clearly the one-year mark of the war. I don't like calling it an anniversary. It's the one-year mark of the war. We talk about what's happening there, what's next for Putin, what this all means for Xi Jinping. And also, we talk about spy balloons, because how can you not? We talk about Biden's trip uh, into Kiev. And uh, we also get into... Some other areas, particularly Turkey, the awful earthquake there, but what it means geopolitically with the Turkish elections coming up uh, for that regime. We also cover some uh, weird and wonderful news around the world with our John Dories. Now, also just a quick note from me, obviously at the one year mark of the war, uh, a big shout out to those who've continued to support the Ukrainian efforts and, and a big shout out to all my friends uh, who are still in Ukraine fighting uh, against this awful Putin regime and this invasion. Uh, if you're interested in my thoughts about what comes next, I wrote a very lengthy essay uh, for the financial review about this. It's called Putin's Last Stand, uh, where I talk about whether or not Putin, I believe, is a good chance of being removed. So do check that out. If you are new to the show, if you are enjoying the show, you haven't yet done it, and I've been asking for a long time, so naughty you, but please do get on, rate, review, share the podcast. It really does help drive us up the charts and we often end up in that top 10 um, in our category. So thank you so much for your support. Enough jubing from me. Enjoy the show. Hagar, welcome back. So good to see you, mate. How are you?
0: I'm good, Misha. It's good to see you. How are you? I'm well. I'm
1: well. Now, it's been a month since we last spoke, which is always whenever I'm thinking about talking to you, I'm always like, Oh, we'll have to talk about this, we'll have to talk about that. And then of course, three weeks passes and that's like kind of yesterday's news, right? But uh what we can't ignore, we just passed the one year mark of the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I thought a good place to start would be Joe Biden goes to Kyiv. Mr. Biden goes to Kyiv. What a extraordinary moment. The first time a president's ever gone into a war zone without having an enormous military presence. So that by itself is a huge high risk uh, thing for him to have done. Incredibly brave and unconventional 10 hours each way in the train to do four hours in the city. Um, and also I think I, I enjoyed the compare and contrast of uh, Biden is actually drinking coffee at one of my favorite coffee shops Uh in Ukraine, and then meanwhile, Putin. Right, meanwhile, Putin is you know raging away um, in Moscow, and all the pressure's on him. So I thought it was an interesting compare and contrast. A year on after he said he, you know, one year into Vladimir Putin's twenty-four hour war, but Biden, Kiev. What do you make of it? What does it say about uh, the war? What does it say about U.S. commitment? Was it say more generally about going forward?
0: I got really giddy about this trip. I'm not going to lie, and uh, you know, I did a video about it. And I got a lot of reactions saying that I was overly supporting, you know, showing so, that I was being too far left or too, too in favor of the president. And I, and I have to be honest with you, had it been a Republican president, I would have reacted the same way. Um So I want to make that clear that my, my joy over this trip and how, and, and how excited I am at the message he conveyed multiple messages to different audiences. I was really excited about for a few reasons. So, We'll start with the message to Putin, which was uh, obviously his main goal to express that the U.S. and allies were here to stay, that this support would endure, that here he was marching the streets of of a capital that Putin thought would be under his thumb by now. So Biden is receiving the welcome and uh, the support that, Putin himself had dreamt of, and Biden is getting there first. And so I think there's a lot of symbolism in that. Um, but you know, and and also this is Russia's geosphere. you know, he's he's miles away from the border, technically and uh, and there he is uh, showing up. And so first, the message to Putin that the support is not going anywhere. We're that it's here to stay. This is not a joke. And here I am personally delivering this message. And then you have the message to the Ukrainians in particular, the Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian citizens as well, with the same, same message to keep their morale up because that support is going to remain. And then, of course, you have the message to Europe, the Allies, Everyone giving that support to reinforce why it's so important to stay united and to stay, uh, in support of Ukraine and to not let fatigue or anything take over. And the reason that's important, and I don't think this message was for domestic purposes here in the United States. It comes at an, at an interesting time though here where you're starting to see questions related to the aid to Ukraine the billions of dollars going the and that that amount is going only going to continue to grow and you're seeing it from both sides you certainly you do see it from from republican a uh, small group of republican leaders for sure who question it and then you do see from Democrats as well. Some, uh, there were 30 Democrats, uh, from Capitol Hill who sent a letter to the White House saying, okay, isn't it time now to shift the focus to diplomatic negotiations because, you know, we may run out of money for, for this. And, um, and so that you, you sense this wariness. And there was a poll that came out in the United States, uh, just now that found that now, uh, of Americans, that's still a lot, but 49% of Americans continue to see why supporting Ukraine is important, down from 60% last year. And so this is where, if you ask me, this is where President Biden and the White House are going to have to also shift their messaging a bit to focus on that crowd and explain to them very clearly why we're giving this kind of support. But anyway, that's what he was doing in Kiev. I uh, I, I thought... It was a real baller move to do it. I'm so glad he did. I I got to tell you, if I took a flight at 4:15 a.m. from DC, went to Germany, then Poland, then boarded a 10-hour train to Kiev, I would not look the way he looked. <laughs> it was pretty impressive and very inspiring.
1: Oh, he was uh, no, he looked good, didn't he? He was very resplendent um, in the. Uh... Yellow and blue tie, so uh, you know. I think um, I think he seemed to look the part, sounded the part, and I thought his speech was was on the money. It's interesting though you say about fatigue, right? Because this is sort of Vladimir Putin's big bet. Um, He thinks that the West is going to shatter. Interestingly though, I think where I was most freaked out, um, and I look, we shouldn't ignore polls that have it sub fifty percent in the United States, given the how key the US is to all this. But where I was most worried was. Um, could European solidarity last through a, a cold winter? And I thought you might see energy riots of things of that nature. They were sort of gearing up uh, in the latter part of 2022. But fortunately, uh, it hasn't happened. Europe hasn't really drawn down in its gas reserves. I think the last card that Putin was hoping for, he's played it. Because in a year's time, when winter rolls around again, um, I don't think the, the energy crisis will be nearly as bad as what was potentially could have occurred on this occasion. So um, you, know, you mentioned before we went to air and maybe just want to fill this in because I think it's a good way to talk about what Putin's aims are. But Bill Burns, the CIA director, had meetings with the Russian counterparts and his view was that the Russians are very confident. Talk us through that a little bit.
0: Sure. it's um, uh, The CIA director, Bill Burns, as you said, met with Russian counterparts uh, to warn them against using a nuclear weapon. And he had an interview here in the United States on Sunday, saying uh, that his assessment was that the that President Putin w- is very confident that his military will grind down Ukraine, and that they are willing and ready to go the long way and wait out for that fatigue that that and and breakup of that unity that they expect, and. And Bill Burns said this based on he he said that this is how the team he met, uh, how they acted, and he believes that they're portraying how President Putin is where he's where his mind is at as well, and that would make sense for President Putin to believe that. That doesn't mean I agree with President Putin's assessment. Uh, on the contrary, but um, but that is. That's where, where they're at, which – and it makes sense because they've just – it makes sense that that's what they're thinking when you see their strategy. They've just – they've been launching new offensives. They've been recruiting troops, drafting them from wherever they can, from poor areas, from prisons, sending in mercenaries. They're They're doubling down. And – it's because they, they obviously must believe this. They, they clearly don't see what the rest of the world sees, which was that this was a gross mistake and that they are, they, they cannot, as Biden said in his speeches, Ukraine won't be a victory for Russia. And I, and, and by the way, I believe that as well. And, um, and that's why, by the way, when, when President Biden also moved to Poland after Ukraine, his biggest message there and when he met with the, the Bucharest nine, which sounds like a baseball team but it's not. It is a grouping of eastern european countries that neighbor each other that kind of they they border each other along the eastern flank of NATO, kind of one long line of them. And they grouped together after Russia annexed Crimea and supported separatists in eastern Ukraine in 2014. And uh and so Biden met with them as well, and the whole message that he kept trying to reinforce with that trip was we have to remain united. We have to keep supporting them. We we cannot, you know, President Putin was counting on NATO to be weak and not united and uh and we can't let that happen. On the contrary, we have to continue supporting, we have to beef up defenses along NATO's eastern flank and um so until until Putin gets this message and uh and and beef up the the support to Ukraine as long as we can, right? So that's that's why that's his focus. Um it's also by why, by the way, and I know we'll get to this later in the in the conversation, it's why it's so risky and uh, and a shame for Turkey and Hungary to be opposing the expansion of NATO, but we'll get to that No, so, I mean, it's Um,
1: interesting, though, because it's funny that this sort of, this notion that Putin thinks he has time, that he can be strategically patient because the West is strategically impatient, that we're going to eventually not want to send aid, not want to send weapons. I wrote about this for the Fin, to plug my own work, but uh, it's a long essay, so we won't go through it all now. But basically, I, I think that when you look at Uh, where the war is at which is that it's a disaster and the political position that Putin's in, he's dialed this thing up and did it again in this speech he gave, this rambling two hour sort of uh, Gaddafi Castro-esque two hour rant against the West, he's dialed this war up to existential levels right, and so once you've said it's existential you have to win and the problem is he can't win, and these things are pulling against one another almost like a wishbone. Something's going to snap at some point because the things that are required to win a war very basic. You need a willing population that's prepared to fight and die. Big question mark, and why wouldn't they be questioning it? 800 to 1,000 of them are dying a day, and now Russia's got a legendary appetite uh, to withstand military losses, but that is no military... On Earth, can sustain that level of loss over time. You know, he's called up uh, 300 call might 250, probably thousand troops. So you can put half of them in. Like you burn through that very quickly if you're losing 7,000 a week, um, and you don't even have to lose all of them to lose fighting capacity. That's the first thing, and he knows he can't really get through another military uh, mobilisation. Is the other problem as well. Uh, there's a political problem there. Notwithstanding, you're an autocracy. Yeah, public opinion still matters, and uh, mobilization is very unpopular. They lost nearly a million people fleeing from the last one. So, they've got human capital flight as well. So, that's the first problem, an obvious one. The second one is they're running out of cash. So, Russia's deficit is now really? 25 billion a month. Um, they can't raise cash internationally because of all the financial sanctions. They can't access most of their reserves, those are frozen. They've got a sovereign wealth fund that they've drawn down to about 150 billion. It's actually less, 148 billion. So, in six months, at could be sooner uh, if things continue to go as they are, and this problem could get worse given their oil and gas caps are just really starting to bite now. Putin will be out of cash, which means he can't shield his population with welfare payments, saying, oh, there's no real problem here. Uh, you can continue to fight and live as you were, sorry, live as you were, notwithstanding the war, and then also can't pay to circumvent sanctions, which kind of gets to the last point, which is that the semiconductor sanctions – and the chip sanctions on the Russian economy are just devastating. It ever said, Oh, well, what's happened? These sanctions, nothing. It's like a slow motion car crash or a python squeeze. You don't press the button on sanctions and suddenly uh, everything collapses. But you lose a tank, you can't build a new tank. Their uh, military industrial complex has collapsed, basically. And they're wheeling out Soviet era tanks, Soviet era bombs. They're fighting a World War II style. You know, b- battle, which is grinding troops into the front line and using unsophisticated mm-hmm. artillery bombardment. I mean, this is not how modern warfare is fought now. So, uh, I think that they've got huge problems, and I actually think that they're one military route which could happen at any moment from huge political unrest domestically. If you see, if we had a big military route, the likes of that which we saw last time uh, in Kherson or Northeastern around uh, around Kharkiv. I don't think Putin can survive that politically, and I think the chess pieces are moving around. And that's a bold call, but I actually think when you look at it and say, okay, this guy can't negotiate because he can't domestically. He must win. and <laughs> So any sort of peace that doesn't involve a complete you know, capitulation by the Ukrainians, which won't happen, he can't accept And further to the point, we can't really, the world we, deal with him as a war criminal and have a viable peace either, nor can the Ukrainians. And so at some stage, the Russian elites are going to say, you know what, the best way out of this, there's no way out for Putin, but there might be a way out for the rest of us. And once that calculation is made, um, I think that his interests are going to start to diverge from everyone else's. But as we know, he's a hard guy to kill. He's living in a very paranoid state he's no longer flying he travels only by train he's got a food tester the long tables really are about making sure that no one can poison him because he's so terrified of being touched by a poison uh contact because that's how he's killed a lot of people <laughs> so you know, he, he is a very he's projecting murderer. I call him the murderer in chief and so um anyway so i that's the message he might be trying to project, but I think internally, I think they know that they're stuffed and I think he's got one last straw of the dice here, which is basically maybe some counter-offensive of grinding enough troops uh, into eastern Ukraine. But this counter-offensive is not going anywhere right now. They're getting very little to no gain, gain that could be measured in houses, not kilometres, for losing hundreds and hundreds of if not thousands of men a day in a week. So um, I just...
0: And can I add something to that? That's that's why when President Putin gave his head of state address the same exact day that Biden gave his speech in Poland, that's why he announced suspension from the New START Treaty. So the New START Treaty is the only remaining arms control treaty between the United States and Russia, and its goal is to reduce... Uh, nuclear missile launchers, and to set up this inspection system to allow each side to make sure that the other is living up to its end of the bargain. And Russia hasn't allowed inspectors anyway since 2020, since the pandemic began. But the reason, you know, this wasn't good news, but it's also not shocking. And it's because the nuclear card is the only one Putin has left because his military has proven to be incompetent and that's why we sometimes we keep hearing it bubble up this threat or or maybe he'll have other military officials issue this threat or now this suspension from the new start treaty except that it it's and I, I'm not saying that um Putin bluffs a lot he doesn't bluff a lot but at the same time while he is definitely overconfident. And probably narcissistic and definitely erratic. Okay. I also don't think he's completely irrational to, to launch right. nuclear weapons without knowing what the, what the outcome would be. Right. And your point about sanctions is, you know, I'm a sanctions geek and I'm so excited you mentioned sanctions. The Treasury Department issued sanctions – on the U.S. Treasury Department, on um, Friday, where they they sanctioned Russia's mining and metals industry, which is basically the last big chunk. And they've also said publicly that due to Western sanctions altogether, Russia has lost 9,000 pieces of military equipment. Their tanks, they are down by 50%. And because of that, they're now trying, trying, they haven't even done it, to restore like really old yeah. tanks, uh, with their own parts. And, uh, and, and it's not gonna work. And this is why when you see, like you said earlier, you saw Europe, we were all really afraid about a cold winter in Europe and what that could do. And in part because the weather wasn't as bad as we expected, you have that. But, but Europeans are, uh, for the most part, at least, from what it seems like from the media, they're uh, still in large in large part uh, supportive of, of supporting Ukraine. But what you see happening in Moldova is interesting. And I know it sounds kind of random. Moldova is a small country, relatively small, sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine. But their prime minister just resigned because of a- an increase in energy prices, Uh, increase in cost of living, a lot of, uh, protests, but it's coming from a population in the, in the country that is pro Russia. And that, that population is small, by the way. They're the minority in, in Moldova. It's not a new struggle for Moldovans to, to, to be facing this. But when we talk about it being Putin's next potential target, I'm like, yeah, but they're already spread so thin, and he's running out of money, and he's running out of equipment, and he's running out of men. There's no way Moldova's next. I I think in his dream, yes, uh, protests would, would cause a lot of problems, and there'd be a new government that would be Russia-influenced, sure, but I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh,
1: look, I, I'd be dubious. I mean, there's, always, there's the, the Moldova question goes around Transistria, which is a sort of similar type effort that Putin tried to stir up amongst the Russian ethnic diaspora inside Moldova. Mm-hmm. A similar playbook that he's used in Georgia, South Ossetia, pretty much what he tried yep. in Donbass, saying, oh, there are people here that are Russian and want to be part of Russia. But um, because, as you say, he spreads so thin, he's flat out taking southeastern Ukraine, trying to reach out and start a viable war that he can actually supply. Um, in, in Moldova, I, I'd be very dubious. But, I mean, the, he's just trying to sow discord anywhere, right? And I agree with your assessment around nuclear weapons and not, not withdrawing but suspending from the start uh, uh, treaties that, um, look, I always say that his discussions of nuclear weapons is a projection of weakness, not strength. When things go badly, oh, mm-hmm. you don't forget, no matter whatever happens to Russia, you can humiliate us economically, diplomatically, militarily, but we are still a nuclear superpower that can blow you all up. Okay, so what? Um, I mean, it's, I, I, we can't dismiss it out of hand, and, but at the same time, you start giving in to this threat. Well, not only would you be teaching Putin a bad lesson, i.e. if I say nuclear, you'll cave in, um, you'd be teaching others that have nuclear weapons um, and also other bad guys that say, hey, we should get some too, given it might allow us to play a bit more bluff poker. Now, one way out of this, or a potential way out of this for Putin is China and Xi Jinping and there's been this uh, intelligence coming out of the United States saying China's considering sending lethal uh, aid to Russia to assist Putin of course um, and now they've come out with their so-called peace plan um, which I'm extremely sceptical of uh, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. China's saying well there might be a way for peace here so Do you think that they will send weapons and do you think that this peace plan that uh, the Chinese uh, are sort of prosecuting has any viability?
0: Well, President Biden today said that uh, President Putin approves the peace plan and therefore that's all we need to know about how good it is or not good <laughs> it is. And he said, you know, it, it solicited laughs. And then he said, I'm not being facetious. I'm being serious. You know, if, if it's a plan that Putin approves, then clearly it's not a good one. And I would tend to agree with that, that to begin with, I wouldn't assume that, uh that they would come up with a good plan. Not because, not because I'm not trying to be uh condescending here in any way, shape or form in the past. Um, Years past, the Chinese regime has has tried occasionally to try and play this role of you know we support peace and 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 so on. But um, but yeah, there's no way they're buddy buddy with with Putin. Uh, apparently, they are already sending non lethal aid to Russia. And uh, and so why on earth would this plan be anything? I bet you it looks something similar to Elon Musk's plan that he proposed, <sighs> yeah. where there were like chunks of Ukraine that would be given to Putin and when Elon Musk got criticism for it he was like well i'm just i'm just stating the reality and i right. you know when i saw that i kept thinking no maybe in your your reality of a not foreign policy life right. but um so no i see no credibility in it and i don't think it's going to go anywhere that doesn't mean by the way that i don't think the chinese regime if if there's some magic lever we can pull couldn't be useful. Now we're not at that stage right now since they are at the border of being not useful <laughs> with this intelligence that Blinken has Secretary Blinken has very clearly stated um he came out and said that uh that the Chinese are quote strongly considering giving lethal assistance to uh Russia which would mean ammunition and weapons uh and and possibly other equipment. And uh and has come out obviously saying they that Urging them not to do that, the US UN ambassador went on CNN saying that if they were to do that, it would be a red line and unacceptable, quote, red line and unacceptable for the United States. How I see that, without them saying publicly what the or else would be, I believe that if they were to give lethal assistance to Russia, that it would result in sanctions, in a lot of sanctions. And, and I don't think that the Chinese regime has any reason not to believe that. But I, I, I myself, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, because I myself really went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out why that would be in even the Chinese regime's interest to do, because that would just be fueling a war, uh, and it undermines their one of their number one goals right now, which is to boost their economy. If they're facing sanctions after the pandemic, when they're trying to... to light it up again to to pursue that step doesn't make any sense from that angle but at the same time if if one of their top goals is to stick it to the United States or to make things more difficult and expensive for the United States then then yeah I could see that argument but I do think that the US will be able to hold them off on lethal aid at least for the time being where where that might change is if the US and Europe give F16s to Ukraine which Biden and others have said is not happening now but i don't think that that would be off the table for the future if this drags on
1: yeah look it's funny the whole uh china russia question because clearly you know they they sign up to this uh no limits friendship in uh in february of 2022 next thing putin invades now there's mixed reports about what they knew, what they didn't know. But I personally have the view that she was reassured that this would all be over in 24 hours. It then turns into a complete disaster. So China's prestige is, uh, you know, in some ways linked to Putin's disaster at the same time. So I think I she think is a little bit stuck because on the one hand, I think he sees that Putin's in trouble, right? And I think he knows Putin's in trouble and his instincts are, look, I put there, if Putin stays in charge of Russia, I'm getting more control of Russia as a client state and they're a club autocrat and they stay aligned with me as a counterbalance to Europe and the United States. If Putin goes down, look, I can't see, to be honest, yeah, Russian democracy, unfortunately flourishing, but they might become more amenable um, to the United States Uh, view of the world or more, you know, at least more neutral or or at least settled down compared to what we're seeing under Putin in the last uh, few years in particular. So they kind of got that problem. On the other hand, if they get more involved, um, it's completely contrary to what they've been trying to do over the last six months in terms of, hey, you know, remember all that Wolf Warrior stuff? No, no, it's not all true. And China's open for business and everything's great. So they kind of got their political aims and she always tends to lead political geopolitical and political always tends to be his bias versus economic, but the eco- economy is now becoming a political issue for him uh, because of the like lack, lack of growth. so you're right, the level of sanctions that would be imposed on him and the access to uh, United States markets, European markets would really hurt Chinese. Uh, economic interests a lot more, I think. So I think when push comes to shove, he, he's not going to do it as tempted as he might be to do it, to dig out a, a mate of his. But, at the you know, Chinese weaponry killing Ukrainians would be a disaster. P- parking up the moral argument against it and the military arguments, it would be very bad reputationally, I think, for the Chinese regime, which is already suffering a bad reputational um, sort of a decline globally over the last mm-hmm. year. So when you kind of add that all up, it doesn't make sense beyond going, oh, uh, geez, we just don't want to see Putin go down because we, liked it. we like him as he is and we like how things are trending in that relationship. I actually think to dig down a little further into this, one of the things that is less understood, and I wrote about this actually, is that the Russians... Overall, hate the Chinese. And there is enormous skepticism in the Siloviki, which is the spy class that run Russia. Um, and they, they have a huge skepticism to how much the Chinese are getting their hooks into Russia's economy and how dependent Russia is becoming on a country and a Chinese Communist Party that they once kind of dismiss as a junior partner. You go back to the Soviet era, this was a junior partner. Now, forget about junior partner, Russia's trending towards being a client state of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think when you add all that up, ironically, she could actually be helping Putin's demise hasten um, by becoming, um, uh, you know, helping Russia become more dependent. So anyway, there's so many moving pieces in all that, but I'm skeptical that Putin's going to get bailed out. Um, Now.
0: It's also, it comes at, you know, I don't think China wants to be the Iranian regime. I don't think they want to be known as yeah. building drone factories in Russia. And it comes at a unique time, right? So we're at a bit of a low here between the United States and China uh, following the spy balloon drama. And uh, and so that's not going to help these conversations. But you have to wonder if maybe there's a little bit post-spy balloon in there where China's looking at how they could stick it to the United States. And so maybe it's all bluster, this conversation about sending lethal aid and and so on. And also, you know, when, when Blinken came out and said, you can't do that, the Chinese clapped back and said, you are in no position to tell us what to do with our, with our military. And sometimes, you know, you sit there watching this and I keep thinking, well, this is not in your interest anyway. Don't do it right. because of your ego. Right.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Strategically, it's hard to make the case for it. It's, it's sort of like what they must have versus what they like to have. Uh, they might like to have Putin uh, back to where he was strategically on January 2022, but that's not likely. And I think I, I describe it as, you know, handcuffing yourself to a washing machine going over the side of the ship is not a wise piece of uh, tactical maneuvering, I wouldn't have thought. And so I think she will avoid doing it in the end. Now... You mentioned balloons a little while ago now, but you can't sort of let this slide. What do you make of it all? Because it's just extraordinary. When it first happened, I'll be honest with you. Now, anyone knows me, I'm quite hawkish when it comes to the CCP. Um, I was like, this seems so amateur and so, for lack of a better term, low tech, that i yes. say that this is a mistake and that it was just a balloon that went off course Tur- turns out that it was not only a, it was a concerted strategy um with a lot of uh kit associated with it and been happening for some time going back as far as the trump administration so what do you make of it u.s response um and uh what that says about where china's at right now
0: what a mess right i mean it It almost looked like it, you couldn't make this up. I I live, I tell people, I live in the world of crazy world news. And I couldn't have foreseen this drama and how it unfolded on top of it, right? Not just the balloon, but then the week following it where we shot down three other random balloons in over the US airspace. And so, um, first... Completely agree with you on how this doesn't make sense. I thought the same thing when I heard about this balloon making its way across the United States and you had this banter here, this, pol- of course, partisan banter here in the United States where Republicans were saying, why doesn't the Biden administration just shoot it down? And it is because it was it did pose a legitimate risk because it could kill people um, right. on one hand, but also the cost-benefit analysis was that the Chinese government didn't have much to gain from this balloon. Because it wasn't much more than they couldn't get, than they could get from satellites. They did say that there were communications equipment on there, that they, equipment that could intercept communications. Okay, fine. But listen, that's not the only thing they have that can do that. So, uh, so again, just com- like you said, completely amateur, so dumb. They had to have assumed that balloons like this would be difficult to control and that, Somebody would see it. I mean, I don't know if they thought Americans were so dumb that they'd think it's another moon, but that's absurd. So, um, I will say um, there were pros and cons that came out of this on the U.S. angle. First, that NORAD, the the um, the, the agency that tracks the, these floating devices up 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 there, uh, the one that usually tracks Santa's sleigh, was missing these balloons because they are slow. And so they readjusted. And, um, and so that's good. You know, it's good to be on, on alert. It's good to message to the world that, uh, that we're going to catch if you send something here, we're going to catch it and, and we're going to shoot it down. Uh, but then, and so I was really excited about that. I thought it was a great message from the U.S. to say, you know what? Don't even think about it because we will totally bring you down. But then it went a little bit into the absurd when we we shot down balloons that we didn't know what they were for and this opens up honestly the conversation to a whole new world of of space that i don't i am not an expert in at all but it turned out that these three balloons the u.s air force shot down after our fiercest fighter jet f-22 you know Spending basically millions to to do this, to shoot down two balloons over U.S. airspace, one of which was over Canada airspace, and uh, it turned out that these balloons were from quote private companies and recreational and research use. And I don't know what that means. That's not very specific. But that sounds like it could have come from a high school science lab as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and and so I don't know there whether we won in the in the message to the world and to China specifically that they can't mess around with this, or if we look like fools <laughs> because we didn't see the balloons from the beginning – and ended up shooting a whole bunch of them down that we didn't even know what they were for. So uh, either way, I think that this one will be one for the history books, and um, I do think it's a good message to to the Chinese regime in particular. Um, but uh, but again, it's it's it puts the U.S. Chinese position at a real awkward state. You know, after when when Secretary Blinken met with his Chinese counterpart at the um, on the margins of the Munich Security Conference. They it was testy. The conversation was testy. But then both of them said that uh, that they wanted to reassure everybody that neither side was seeking a Cold War. And oh, I thought that was oh. just really interesting because I'm like, both of you are so clearly angry. In fact, Wang Yi, his Chinese counterpart, traveled to Moscow after that meeting, after Blinken had said, you know, don't give yeah. this aid. Um, and so it's it's definitely a weird – we're in an awkward state. We might uh, not be seeking
1: one, but uh- – uh, we're very much in one I um, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone says oh we don't want to avoid a cold war well yeah, it's hard to see how hey, you're not in one right now but um, yeah actually interesting, like, I agree with you one of the things that I took out of it as well was it made no you mentioned Blinken Blinken was of course meant to be going to Beijing to see not just his counterpart actually to see Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping doesn't meet anybody really that's not a world leader yeah a counterpart and so quite extraordinary that he was prepared to see the secretary of state and so in many ways it kind of says to me does the left hand know what the right hand's doing in the chinese regime because um that's a disaster for them they really wanted Blinken to come um and that was a big opportunity and so suddenly for there to be a spy balloon floating over montana um yeah there's some <laughs> suggestion that it went off Track and that it was a bit of an accident, but I mean, look, mate, I tend to bet on stuff up rather than conspiracy in these things, but um, it definitely says to me, for all their talk of top-down control, Xi Jinping, someone, someone got fired. I'm sure that you know that this spy balloon getting who knows what sort of intelligence couldn't have been great intelligence. I wouldn't have thought. I know, I know people say, oh, I can get, you can stay in the air for longer and get more things. Sure, but the cost benefit, given the uh, loss of prestige, loss of an important meeting. Raising of tensions when they're trying to lower them—it just seems seems a really big net loss. And therefore, as a result, I kind of think to myself, "Are they as in control as they pretend to be?" That's a, that's probably my biggest takeaway out of it all. Now, pivoting back to NATO—you know, we don't normally talk about these things, but I'm kind of you know, and I, I'm very hesitant to mention it in a in a geopolitical sense. But they've obviously, of course, a horrible horrible uh, earthquake in Turkey and Syria um, and parts of the world that are already doing it very tough um, and being you know subject to really awful uh, natural disasters so obviously our hearts go out to all those involved there but I'm curious for your take what does this all mean because Erdogan is a curious cat to say the least Um, he's in the dictator club so to speak but he's also Mm -hmm. in NATO uh, he's not in the European Union. Uh, and so you kind of like triangulating where he sits in all this is tricky at times. And he's sort of played footsies with Putin, but at the same time, not, you know, they've had their own proxy wars um, in and around the region um, where they've been propping up separate regimes. So what's your take? Where does this leave Erdogan and what does it mean going forward? Um for Turkey, but then their relationship to the things that we've just been discussing.
0: I'm so glad – I'm so excited we're talking about this because I have the same view as you do. When you have – you have these – you have horrific natural disasters all over the world. This was this was awful. Over 46,000 died, um, millions displaced, many, many thousands of others injured, and the reason – the reason it's important to talk about it is because – The response was so bad from the Turkish government and President Erdogan, and I hate that guy, I'm going to tell you this right now, this curious cat maybe, but I hate that guy and I'm going to get to why and and he has elections in May and as it was, he was already facing an increasingly tough atmosphere in Turkey because the Turkish lira has crashed, cost of living has skyrocketed uh, there have been protests related to that. He has put his own cronies and relatives and best friends in positions across government, in universities, you name it, and, and none of them are qualified to be doing what they're doing. And on top of it um, – and there's been a lot of resistance to that. And then on, and then to boot – on top of it has been, after nearly two decades in office, has been in, pursuing a an increasingly authoritarian and Islamic rule and a lot of Turkish citizens don't like it. So he's been jailing political dissidents and journalists and so on, and, and increasingly doing so as time goes on. And uh, and at the same time, by the way, he is uh, in NATO, of course, um, and yet, by the way, has, has actively worked against national security interests tied to NATO, certainly tied to the United States, um, but to NATO as well. And uh, he has, for example, uh, has tried to go into northern Syria and has wanted to go after the Kurds with whom the United States was allied at, which is how we got rid of ISIS, by the way, though they were the troops on the ground. They're the ones who did that uh, with the backing, of course, of the coalition, but still, and um, and uh, Erdogan hates the, the Kurds there. They hates the Kurds in general. And, um, and now when you have what you see with the earthquake, the reason this earthquake could be bringing all of this to light or maybe perhaps this is the straw that breaks the camel's back in his political career is because not just because the response was slow which could happen in a lot of places you could argue that for natural disasters anywhere including the United States sometimes it's because he pursued a policy of massive of mass construction and he even advertised how he allowed con- construction um developers that's not the right word. How he allowed developers, builders, and so on. He gave them, quote, construction amnesty or amnesty, uh, zoning amnesty, something like this. He had a term for it so that they didn't have to abide by all these superfluous earthquake rules. And now, as a result, you had all these buildings crash. And a lot of these buildings were these new buildings built with as part of this uh, as part of this policy of his and so the the connection there is very clear and turkish citizens see that connection they are not they they see it clear as day and so erdogan is not invincible he really could as as authoritarian as he is he is not invincible when it comes to these upcoming elections so i'm fascinated to see if all of this could undermine his political standing um and i and i have to add as well and i don't think this matters as much to the domestic turkish voter but but his position to prevent sweden and finland from joining nato it highlights That this guy, I hate this guy, is nothing more than a hostage taker. And the reason I say that is because he knows he has this power and he's trying to get what he can out of it. And so it started with a deal he said back in the summer. Oh, I'm going to let them in. We're coming to a, they came to an agreement on how Finland and Sweden are with their policies toward the PKK, which is a Kurdish um, militia. That is designated as a terrorist organization by the United States, by Europe, and by Turkey, and a couple others. And, um, and so this was his hang up, allegedly, with the, with these two countries. And so they came to an agreement. Now he's saying, and he said, okay, great. There, we're going to let them in. We just, you know, have this agreement. Now he's saying Sweden is not living up to its end of the agreement. But now, and now he has a new chapter, which is that anti, Islamic protests in Sweden. Now he wants Sweden to make sure that people can't burn the Quran in public, that they can't protest against uh, Islam in general, that they can't. I'm not saying that people, that I think that's a good thing. I'm just saying that. That is the you're talking about infringing ah, on the free speech right. of another country, yeah. Um, and that uh, that people shouldn't be able to burn pictures of Erdogan, which they did in Sweden, and uh, and now he's using that as the reason for which mm. he doesn't want Sweden to join. And this is this is hostage taking, that's what he's doing. I mean, that's what he's going to do, that's that's what he's used to, that's how he does business, and this is why one of the many reasons I hate that guy. Well,
1: it's interesting, <laughs> it's interesting that um, because he's like. Left- in many ways you look at the things you described that he's doing, he's like kind of 10 years behind Putin. I mean, Putin was doing this in yeah. the, you know, 2004, 5, you know, cracking down on domestic uh, media, arresting political opponents and sort of ratcheting uh, through a period um, of 20 plus years that Erdogan sort of started off as a bit of a conservative uh, Islamic position and is, is gradually going through the autocratic metamorphosis. But... Competence is an interesting one, though, right? Because, you know, it it kills democratic governments, but it can also kill autocratic governments. Putin really is suffering from a crisis of competence because this war, he's meant to be a strong man and the war is a disaster for him. You're talking about the example there, Virta One uh, allowing the construction of these uh, non-earthquake compliant towers, which then crumble when there's a massive earthquake. Again, crisis of competence. And even Xi Jinping claiming to know what he was doing with zero COVID and then all these protests that you saw. So, you know, just because there's a democracy, sorry, just because the uh, totalitarian dictatorship doesn't mean there's no, or not, you know, autocracy or something in between, that doesn't mean that it's no, there's no politics, right? And the competence of these regimes, they're very paranoid about it not being seen to be incompetent, right? So actually just curious, just, you know, you talked about Erdogan's leverage there. Reminds me a little bit of Orbán, in Hungary what do you do about these guys that now guys but that are Thugs. well right but they're in NATO they're in the EU are you better off having them for lack of a better term inside the tent pissing outward or outside the tent pissing inward like I mean you kick you kick Erdogan out of NATO does he then immediately become a potential ally of Putin and Xi and others, or is he weakening NATO sufficiently that it's not worth having him in there? Likewise with Erdogan, sorry, with, uh, with Orbán, you kick Hungary out because they're breaching the rules around democracies and participation inside the EU, NATO. But uh, is he, it is he a bigger threat to have them as a potential growing client of Russia, particularly I don't really know the answer there, but it is a bit of a devil's bargain, isn't it?
0: Um, you know, I love this question. First of all, it's like a dissertation question. We could spend like hours on this, but I will give a con- yeah. Nine no, minutes, two minutes, run out of time. Yes, right? <laughs> two minutes. Which is just that I do believe, I inherently believe that that the uh, West um, and that we don't use the we don't play our cards very well. Because we aren't authoritarians. We aren't dictators. We don't think the same way. We don't act the same way. And as a result, sometimes when you're talking about negotiating with an authoritarian or dictator, you may end up inevitably being on – you may end up having – being in the weaker position when you are a democracy because – you're not going to play as ugly usually and you're not going to lie. And you're, you know, it's just a different, it's a different way. And yeah. I'm not saying I would prefer us to be, to be ugly, but there are times sometimes I'll give you an example. Like when the, the F-16 conversation, when Biden today said, you know, no, that's, that's not happening. And part of me wanted to be like, don't you want to just make it vague? Yeah, like, you, know, just, you don't want to you know,
1: you know, lose leverage in negotiations. Yeah. Like, you disclosure okay, I'm a to go, negoti- you know, that's been a lot of my yeah. life negotiating many ways. And I think, all cards on the table create yeah. some Speaking
0: important. of f 16s by the way, the US is debating selling F-16s to uh to the to Erdogan and and they insist it is not a quid pro quo for Turkey to accept Sweden and Finland into NATO. It's a hundred percent a quid pro quo, number one. <laughs> and that's don't I mean, come on. Sure, maybe it's not written somewhere, but but you mean to tell me that if you sell them F-16s that you're going to allow them to not you're, to not allow Sweden or Finland, or you're not going to expect that first to happen before selling F-16s. I don't even know if that's going to happen, by the way, because there are a lot of members of Congress who, like me, hate that guy. And so I don't know that they're going to sell the F-16s to Erdogan. And given this election, they may wait. Everybody's going to wait, by the way. I think you're not going to see movement on NATO. You're not going to see movement on this F-16s until after this election in May, because a lot could change, right, with that. So, yeah. um, But I do think that sometimes we don't play our cards right with all, these are with all dictators. By the way, I'm talking with China, all of them. There's a lot, we could be a lot tougher sometimes because I am inherently, and listen, this is an opinion, but I do believe often, Saudi Arabia is another good example, where they stand to gain more from the relationship with us than vice versa. And of course, there are things we want both ways. With Saudi, it's the oil. With Turkey, they have an airbase that we use in the Middle East. Yes, great. I understand. But... They stand to gain more, and why don't think that would we you, play
1: those cards. Would you kick Turkey out of NATO and Hungary out of the EU? Yes, no.
0: <laughs> Do I have to answer that? Oh my god! Listen, Look, I
1: guess the answer—the fact that you're reluctant to—I guess kind of proves the point, right? So this is where we're less stuck. To in your this point, yeah. Of going, I'd rather
0: negotiate. I'd rather grind uh, them down and win the negotiation, and but you, but and I think negotiate. that we could.
1: To negotiate, you'd have to have the threat there.
0: Yeah. But listen, Hungary stands to gain a lot being an EU member. Turkey right. stands to gain a lot being a There's NATO member. Why
1: so Ukraine's flip it on its desperate. head. Ukraine's desperate to get into NATO and the EU, right? Yeah. There's a reason for yeah. it. So, now, so
0: instead, go to them and say, I'm going to threaten your membership if you don't change your behavior. Right. And f- that's, that's how they would behave, for example. Right. But we don't right. do that.
1: Yeah. I don't know yeah. why. No, I, I agree with you. Now – uh, we could go all day with our various mm-hmm. dissertations. But, of course, we need to wrap this up over time as ever. But I <laughs> hope it's because I, there's always so much to talk about. But you're John Dory. What's the story? Give us your uh, your take on the weird and wonderful world of foreign policy. What do you got for us?
0: Okay. So I've been... I don't want to give Kim Jong Un the attention he's seeking because it's very clear that that's <laughs> that what he wants. Of this
1: podcast, right? So he's going to be like, finally, I got to mention on diplomats. Yeah, anyway, yep.
0: Kim, Kimmy Jong Un, we're finally talking about you. Um Listen, he's a fool. But he's a dangerous fool. He has pursued a number of missiles, uh, missile tests in the past few uh, – or it was a week ago now. And um, and it's, it's dangerous and, and we know this. But the reason I thought it was perfect for John Dory is because no North Korea news is without the absurd. And so – he pursues this missile test. It, it prompts a U.S. South Korea, a joint air exercise. Then it prompts the next day, two more missile tests from North Korea vowing retaliation in, in response to these joint exercises. And President Trump comes out of nowhere to defend his buddy Kim Jong Un. And say and explain that, you know, listen, this guy is really genuinely uh, scared of these joint air exercises. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, shut up. This is – even even – the North Koreans do say that publicly. But – They've heard over and over and over again that these joint exercises are there to defend and deter against a nuclear weapon. So I can't imagine that they're that tone deaf. Um, But I will highlight the last part of this absurdity is that the U.S. media here has been obsessed. And I don't know. I'd love to hear if this is the same in Australia, has been obsessed with whether he's grooming Kim Jong-un is grooming his nine-year-old daughter to take over. And so you've got all these experts coming out on air saying, you know, clearly because he's parading his nine-year-old daughter around and he doesn't show any of his children in public that clearly he's grooming her to take over. It Maybe it means he has health issues and he's concerned. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I think this was take your daughter to work day, first of all. (laughs) And second of all, I would be happy if this nine-year-old took over. I think that she would be way more rational than he would be. I don't know that I would mind it. Um, and so that is my John Dory. And uh, But I'd love to hear, in Australia, did they also cover this the same way?
1: No, is a short answer, but that's not to say that it's not <laughs> v- worth covering. But uh, I think you're right in terms of that kind of Occam's razor. The most obvious thing is, is Kim Jong-un likely to hand things over to his nine-year-old daughter? Unfortunately, probably not, and I agree with you. And when you've got a bad guy in charge, change is better than no change. That's why I advocate with Putin. You know, people are like, oh, well, well, what would have come after Putin? Who cares? Um, If the devil we know is a murderous psychopath threatening nuclear annihilation, at this point, who cares, right? The next change, even if it's the same, is worth the shot. Um, Now, mine actually is kind of silly, but I couldn't help but notice it when I was scanning the news that uh, there's been a second bear escape in St. Louis over the last month from the St. Louis Zoo. And it just reminded me, the only reason it came to my notice was because we had a great lion escape here in Sydney uh, in December last year. And so I don't know what's going on around the world, but animals are breaking out of zoos. you got lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. So um, uh, there it is. So I, don't I know. hadn't
0: <laughs> heard that. I so, will you tell you that there was... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was news that some um, very, like, really scary monkeys broke loose from the Dallas Zoo a few weeks ago. And I I saw that one, but I didn't see this one. And I don't know what's going on over there, but they got to get that under control. I'm not a big fan of zoos. This is why. Well, that's (laughs)
1: right. I'm not a huge fan of zoos, but they become less appealing when the idea that the exhibits could break out some kind of uh, (laughs) traffic park type scenario. (laughs) Anyway, Hagar, great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been a great chat and uh, we'll catch up soon. Um, Enjoying your show. Please uh, give the quick plug for your show while you've uh, got everyone. Thanks so
0: much, Misha. My show is Oh My World on YouTube, where once a week in 10 minutes, I cover the top world news stories and geopolitical events in a fun, easy and satirical way, which means I also dress up like a lot of world leaders with a lot of wigs and bad accents, uh, because I try to make this stuff funny and fun because it really matters. And uh, yeah, so you can catch it on YouTube. Please subscribe. It's free, obviously. And then follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, wherever you're on social media.
1: There you go. There you have it. Make sure you do it. It's a, it's a great show. I, I learn a lot and I, uh, I know which wigs look good and which ones don't as a result. Anyway, thanks, Hagar. See you next time. Bye for now.
0: Thank you so much.
1: G'day, Diplomates fans. Uh, thanks so much to Hagar for coming on the show. If you do enjoy uh, her commentary, and it is stellar, uh, do check out Oh My World, the show. It's, uh, it's really quite fantastic and you'll learn a lot whilst being entertained. Now, I've got a question here from Jess. Jess asked me, Misha, which election this year are you watching most closely? Uh, That's actually a good question. Um, Well, we talked about the Turkish election coming up, which I think will be fascinating, but actually I'm gonna throw to one a little closer to home. Uh, And the Nigerian election, is also uh, profoundly interesting given the size and importance of that country in Africa just happened. Um, so check out those results, which are fascinating, but I think actually the East Timorese election will be interesting because, uh, now I won't break down Timorese politics because I'm not an expert in it, uh, but it is interesting. It's a small country, clearly on our doorstep, massive ramification of what happens there uh, in terms of, the election the platforms but also the relationships with the Chinese Communist Party and particularly with Australia given the scandal that occurred with the spying is related to the Sunrise Gas Project. Uh, Naughty on us for doing that and clearly that it set back relationships and trust with the East Timorese quite a bit but I think there's big implications there for how any Timorese government deals with the probabilities of getting that gas project off the ground. It's a critical project, whether or not it gets processed and I'm boring everyone here, but whether it's processed inside East Timor, which would be very hard and very expensive or whether it comes onshore into Australia, which would obviously not be very popular given um, it would not create as much domestic work inside East Timor, but would be more likely to get off the ground. But the, the hidden secret in all this is that East Timor desperately needs funds. Uh, At the moment, they're in a big budget deficit drawing down on their sovereign wealth fund. And uh, they're gonna be broke probably the end of this decade. And if that happens, they effectively, for lack of a better term, become a little bit of a failed state because they'd struggle to be able to raise money internationally uh, given their economic profile. So it's a concern for Australia, what happens in that scenario. So uh, we need to find a way to get all the parties to the table, um, whomever these Timorees elect as their government, but also uh, Woodside, Australian government, other gas interests, Japan, uh, which has significant gas interests in the Northern Territory, the IMPEX project, and getting everyone on the table or at the table rather to get a deal done because it's quite critical. Anyway, good question. That's my kind of slightly random answer, but I think quite critical, so keep an eye for that. It's likely in May, Oh, sorry, May, I believe. Anyway. Enough for me. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You were just listening
0: to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels.
1: This podcast was
0: brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.